fellow music nerds. Welcome to Season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, fellow music nerds. Thank you for getting down with more extreme nerdiness with me today. My guest this week is a killer musician, and uh, I love going into the pedal steel rabbit hole, and that's where we're going today. But it, fear not, it doesn't get super pedal steel uh, heavy. But um, my guest today is a great musician. He is known for his pedal steel playing and production skills. His name is Lloyd Maines. And, you know, I've talked a bit about what I consider the zones of music history. I'm talking about American popular music history. And there's a zone in my mind that incorporates the Austin, Texas music scene of the 70s and 80s. And that's where Lloyd fits in. I became aware of him through his association with Joe Ely on his string of awesome albums that date back to the late 1970s. And Lloyd Maines was in Joe's band all through that period. Eventually he left the band to kind of get off the road and he became the man to call to produce and, and play pedal steel if you were in Austin. So his credits are really long and epic and you should go look them up. And they include a who's who of classic Texas acts like Butch Hancock, Terry Allen, Jerry Jeff Walker, the Flatlanders, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Asleep at the Wheel, not to mention playing on contemporary albums for Wilco, Uncle Tupelo, and many, many more. Um, he's also the father of Natalie Maines, the amazing singer of the Dixie Chicks, and he produced some of their albums and plays on most of them. So I wanted to get in touch with Lloyd to hear about all this stuff and all the facets of his life and career, and he was nice enough to oblige. I've never met Lloyd, but he was a great guy to talk to, and I loved having him on the show. And we did get to nerd out a little bit about the steel guitar, but, you know, we'll save the heavy steel nerding for another time. But we really got to hear the story of a guy that toured his ass off and then made the transition into the studio and thrived in all those scenarios. So I'm looking forward to you hearing it. Thanks to everybody for downloading and or listening or streaming or whatever you're doing to listen to the episode. Um, as always, you can visit me and the show at www.stevedawson.ca. You can um, keep in touch with me there, make some comments if you feel like it. And if you feel inclined to contribute to the podcast with a donation, you can also do it there at the website. You can go to the podcast page and click on any episode and leave a donation if you feel like it. Uh, it's the only way we really have of keeping this show going. So thank you for that if you've done it. Um, also, if you haven't done so yet, please head over to iTunes and subscribe for free to the podcast there. That helps us get 
in the the, uh, iTunes listings, and that helps get the word out. So please do that. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lloyd Maines. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, how are you doing, man? Good. So we're finally going to do this. I think we're probably going to do it. <laughs> my, my schedule is is so bizarre with the, the, all the projects that I do, and then uh, I can imagine, and then mix in four mix in four grandkids with that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so you're you're a, a steel player too, then? Right? Yeah, that's right. Well, what kind of steel you play? Uh, I've got a Williams. That's that's sort of my main one. Um, I've had. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they're cool, man. I uh, I played a Carter for quite a while for a few years. Um, that was a nice yeah. a nice single ten, but then um, I don't know. I started traveling with it, and it kind of got a little banged around. So I wanted to get something new, and um, I learned from a guy named Greg Lease. Uh, I don't know if you know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. so he sure. was kind of my teacher, and uh, he was playing a Williams, and I, I really dug that, and I wanted something kind of compact. You know, the Carter's like a uh-huh. single neck on a double neck body, right? Oh, so yeah. that's what I was yeah. used to, mm-hmm. but the Williams are built into a single neck, and uh, so it was cool. It was kind of what I was looking for. Yeah, that's good. So, so they still make Williams then, right? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, like a really hands-on company. I talked to the the guy directly that that builds them, and uh, you know, he he'll work with you on setting it up exactly the way you want it and stuff. Yeah, they're fully fully going. Oh, fantastic! Well, since we're on the topic of steel, uh, tell me about um, you know this isn't really a podcast about steel guitar or anything, but. Um, you know, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff anyway, and and I know some people are. But but what do you play um, steel wise? Do you have a? I've got uh, two Mullen. Oh, okay. Uh, 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 they're they're the uh, just like you've got on the had on the Carter. They're they're single neck, uh, but they're on a double frame, so they've got the padded back neck. Okay. And uh, and I, I really like the Mullen. They, they're really solid. They're made in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a mom and pop operation there so they you know they they just do a great job that uh uh they always sound good and they stay in tune uh and then i and then i've also got uh when i first first learned to play i, uh, I played showbud back, yeah. back in the early 70s i had a showbud uh uh and so i you know even though showbuds are have you know don't they're they're out of business they don't really make make guitars anymore yeah. but uh I've, I've always liked the way Showbuzz look, you know. Uh, yeah, they uh, are cool looking. Uh, I like the the wooden wooden body and bird's eye maple. Uh, just just look great. So I've I've got a a really nice pristine uh, Lloyd Green model. Oh wow, okay. That I I just like having it around. I say you know it's real solid. Uh, yeah. It's real heavy. Yeah, yeah, I'll no say doubt. that. But uh, and and I don't really play it uh, that much. I, I play the Mullins, uh-huh. but. Uh, uh, I like having it around. It's it's it kind of stays in my closet. Yeah, man. I yeah. I wish I had one of those kicking around. One of these days, I'll I'll pick up a showbud. I think 
There's a few, oh, there's yeah. a few of them around yeah. Nashville. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you don't play the C6 neck at all, or uh, you don't? You know, back back when I was uh, when I was playing with Joe Ely uh, back in the seventies. Uh, you know, and I still play with him some now. But uh, uh, I, I did some C6. I, I, I was back when I learned to play steel. There were no there were no teachers around, so I just kind of had to teach myself. And I and I love the C6. But uh, in West Texas, where I grew up, there there just wasn't that big a call for it. You know, everybody wanted E9. Oh, really? So E9 was uh, was my main focus back then, and that's that's really what I learned. Uh, okay. And on C6, I, I just kind of made it up on my own. You know, I, yeah. I don't think. Uh, when I do when I do play C six, I don't I don't really think I play it uh, like the traditional guys do. I, I just kind of make up my own stuff, uh, you know. And with Ely, I played uh, uh, probably about four songs a night on C six. Okay. And uh, and then uh, with with my brothers band, with the Mays Brothers, uh, maybe did a couple of songs a night on C six. But, but you know, we just got to where it was it was not worth the the extra weight to carry it around. <laughs> so so I, I started. I, I just tried to try to. Uh, do the best I could with the E ninth, and uh, it, it's it's worked out okay. It worked out for for me and Lloyd Green okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> so you mentioned growing up in in West Texas, and uh, I want to talk about like where you. Uh, I I know you grew up in Lubbock, and um, yeah. Uh, so just out of curiosity, though, like growing up when you did, which um, I don't know exactly when you were born, but like growing up in the fifties, sixties around there, was Western swing not a huge like. Um, the C6 tuning is kind of more geared towards that sort of a sound. Was that not a huge, right. was that not right. a huge thing for you as a budding musician? No, not, not really. When I was growing up, I, I, I was born in 51. So, uh, you know, by the time I started playing, I, uh, playing steel, I was about 17 years old. And, uh, okay. by that time, by that time, uh, uh Bob Wills, uh, you know, yeah, Bob Wills was, was from Turkey, Texas, which is real near, uh, it's not too far from Lubbock. Okay. And I and I was aware, I was aware of Bob Wills, mm-hmm. and, and actually my my brothers and I had a band. We had a little uh, a band, uh, kind of a dance band. We played rodeo dances and VFWs uh, all around West Texas. And I remember uh, playing some gigs, uh, you know, you know, out mm-hmm. out in the ranching country. Uh, 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 in fact, I remember playing one time in this uh, this this uh, uh, little 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 ranch town and it was in a gymnasium and, and we played on a Friday. And I remember seeing a, a poster mm-hmm. advertising Bob Wills and the Texas playboys were going to be there the next night. Oh. Yeah, but you know, back, back in those days, it, yeah, we just kind of took it for granted. We, right. And, and I, I really, I really regret that I, that I didn't have the, the, the foresight to, to like go see a Bob Wills show, you know? So I, so I, consequently I never got to see him live. Okay. But, but back when, when, when I was learning to play music, uh, you know, I, I liked Western Swing, but we, we didn't do that much. We, we did more. I mean, I was I was totally into Merle Haggard, yeah, yeah, Buck Owens, uh, George Jones. You know, I, I learned I learned all of uh, Ralph Mooney's licks on all those early early Merle Haggard sure. records and. Yeah. Uh,
Buddy Emmons, I loved. I, I just never really worked up any of his C6 stuff. I, right. but, uh, of course, he was the, the king on the E9th, you know. Uh, but I, I liked uh, Tom Brumley. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tom Brumley played for Buck Owens. I, I learned a, a lot from just listening to him. Where in the world you been? I ain't had the miseries since you've been gone. Hello, trouble, 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 welcome home. But like, like I said, there were no teachers there, so I had to, I had to learn just by listening, and then. Uh, and then anytime Willie Nelson would come through West Texas, uh, he always had Jimmy Day with him. Right. Yeah. Tell me a bit about Jimmy Day. Like you obviously got to see him with uh, with Willie, right? Oh, oh, I got to see him many times. Uh, there was a club there in, in Lubbock called the Cotton Club. It was just right outside of Lubbock. Uh-huh. And uh, Willie Nelson would come there, and uh, and this is the days where where Willie was wearing a, a, a three piece leisure suit, <laughs> uh, and he had and he had a crew cut. You know, it's like he was. Those are good days, man. Uh, he, he, oh, good days, good days. And he always had Willie Nelson playing with him, and uh, so uh, sorry, he always had uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Day, Day playing with him. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, Jimmy Day, and and uh, I would set up right. I mean, literally three feet from from Jimmy Day, wow. and and just watch every move he made. You know, he was such a soulful player. Yeah, yeah. And and I, you know, and I had just started started learning how to play steel, and so I just. I mean, I would I would watch every nuance. I'd, I'd watch every move that he made, uh, and just soak it all up. You know, I, I soaked it up, and I would go back home and 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 try to apply it uh, to my steel. And so I learned I learned awful, awful lot from him just just by watching and, and paying attention. Was he on E9 strictly? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically E9 the entire night. There, there were a couple songs uh, that he might uh, actually. I, I think only one song that I hear him play uh, C6 on, okay. uh, and, and Willie let let uh, uh, let Jimmy Day do a solo uh, uh, in almost every every show. And uh, and I remember uh, every time I heard him, he played this song called One Mint Julep. Uh, it's an old 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 jazz tune. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so so uh, Jimmy Day played that on uh, on C six. It, it was great. I mean, he had he had a great C six touch, but he just, I, I just never saw him play it that much. So what were those shows like? Like how big was was Willie Nelson at that point? And was it kind of a roadhouse or was it more of like a like a stadium or something? 
No, no, it was a beer hall. It was a probably uh, maybe you could uh, on a really good night if it was packed, there'd be five hundred people in there. Wow! But I, I remember, um, uh, I remember I, I was setting up kind of kind of near the front. My, uh, we were we were all underage. My brothers sure. and I were underage, so my dad had to take us out there. And I remember we were uh, kind of sitting up near the bar with my dad uh, as as Paul English uh, was Willie's drummer yeah, yeah. and and road manager. And I remember one time uh, I, I overheard when, when Paul was settling up at the end of the night uh, with, with the uh, bar owner. And apparently Willie had, had played it for a guarantee of $1,000. Yeah. And there wasn't, wasn't quite enough tickets sold to cover that. So I, I remember uh, hearing Paul English and the, and the club owners sort of, sort of argue it out. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the club owner was trying to get him to take less. And Paul was saying, no, <laughs> no, that was our guarantee. And so, so that just kind of gives you an idea. The, you know, I'm, we're talking about 1968. I would have thought nobody was messing with Willie Nelson by that point. No, no, he was. You know, it was still. Uh, I mean, he was. He was definitely a uh, you know known as a songwriter, and he had a, had a few records out on his own. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he he was still doing the the dance hall circuit. I'd like to ask a little bit about the whole Texas scene because I know that um, you know you growing up there, and and there's a lot of musicians you've worked with that are regionally really well known in Texas and it kind of like you can kind of have a career within Texas in a way right um oh yeah now was Willie touring all over America in those days or was he kind of sticking to Texas uh well I think he was uh I'm not sure how extensive his tours were I know that 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 was kind of a just after the time that he had moved from Nashville you know he was in Nashville and and couldn't really get attention as an artist. He, uh, he, he definitely got attention as, as a writer because, uh, you know, he, he had already written crazy and, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that, you know, so, so he was getting a lot of attention as a writer, but just not as an artist. And, uh, and, and it wasn't until he moved to Texas. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure when he moved to Texas, but I know that he moved here and, and was kind of doing the, the dance hall circuit. Yeah. Then whenever, uh, you know, in, in the early seventies, whenever he, well, actually, I think it was around 70 or 71 when, when he let his hair grow long and had decided to do the, do the cowboy hippie thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's when he really started up, uh, right. and, and he and Waylon, Waylon Jennings, you know, Waylon Jennings was from, from Littlefield, Texas, which is about, uh, 28 miles from Lubbock, uh, 28 miles West. And so, so Waylon had, had already had a few, a few big hits, mm-hmm. you know, back in the, in the. 60s and uh but they were you know it was all all stuff he'd, he'd recorded in nashville and right. then when, when he and willie got together they they really stirred up the uh the outlaw yeah, thing sure. and uh and I, both of them just took off from that point and uh was was waylon uh, somebody that you had a chance to see around lubbock and and that area as well not not when he was uh living in that area my my dad and my uncles uh uh also had a band they, they had the uh mays brothers band uh Back in the oh gosh, uh, early early sixties, just maybe a weekend band, but they, they did a few shows with uh, with Waylon, mm-hmm. and so I, I didn't really meet Waylon until I started playing with Joe Ely, okay. uh, and we opened opened a few shows for him uh, in the mid to late seventies, and uh, uh, yeah, he, he was a great guy, great guy, and uh, so so many bands emulated Waylon when he was started doing that halftime beat. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I think Waylon was was kind of the guy that. That that made the halftime beat uh, uh, so 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 pronounced in, in country music. You know, it's like 
like it was halftime, but it, it was such a driving rock and roll uh, attitude mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think that's what separated him from a lot of a lot of the country acts back in those days. She got tired of that smoky wine dream. Began to feel lonesome. Henri and me. Growing up in that area in in Lubbock, obviously Buddy Holly looms large. Um, but what else were the, were the big influences for you? Like, so you grew up in the era in the era of early rock and roll, and and um, you know what was what were you listening to as a kid? You know, your Buddy Holly died in '59, so I I was never uh, I never got to meet him. My, my uh, dad and my uncles uh, knew him, but but I guess. I remember my my first record. Uh, whenever I first got a got a record player, when I was just a kid, my my parents let me pick out a forty five that I that I wanted, and I and I picked out you know, and I can't even I can't remember what Conway Twitty's uh, rock and roll name was, or or to tell you the truth, I think that that the name on the forty five was Conway Twitty, uh-huh. but it was a rock rock and roll song. Yeah. It was a flat out rock and roll song. Yeah, he was sort of he parents. was sort of comparable to Elvis back in those days. Oh yeah, 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 totally. And and I can't remember the song, but I remember uh, that, that I liked the 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 you know the the kind of rock and roll attitude of it. The swagger. I, I was only like nine years old, you know, something like that. Right. Uh, but I remember I remember my, my parents uh, frowned on the on the fact that I actually <laughs> picked a rock and roll record by Conway Twitty. <laughs> what know? were they hoping for? <laughs> Oh, you know, they, they they were pretty pretty country, okay. pretty country oriented. Yeah. So yeah, but 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 later on, I tell you, uh, when I started playing music, I, man, I, I just soaked it all up. I mean, I I, I you know, like I said, uh, Merle Haggard, uh, a guy named Wynn Stewart. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I don't I remember Wynn Stewart. He, you know, he had a lot of a lot of great radio stuff back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that Merle Haggard and uh, and that whole West Coast bunch kind of patterned themselves after Wynn Stewart a bit. Actually, before I started playing steel, I played uh, some electric guitar and acoustic guitar, mm-hmm. and and so my brothers and I knew every every hacker song. I mean, we we could we, we could do you, them you all, know right? if you're going to play a dance dance in West Texas, if if you knew Merle Haggard and a couple of Bob Wills songs and uh, some George Jones, Ray Price, Johnny Bush, if you knew that stuff, you would always have a weekend gig, right? Right. Uh, because people just love to dance dance to it. But I tell you, after, after that though, I, I kind of got turned on, and I'm not sure by. Uh, who turned me on to him? But, but to to Poco, uh-huh. uh, Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah. Who is the steel player in Poco? Uh, Rusty Young. Right. Right. Okay. Rusty Young. Yeah. You know, and I remember hearing this live record uh, by Poco. Uh, the name of the record was Deliverin'. And if if you've never heard that, it's it's an absolutely great live record. It had uh, Rusty Young on steel. It had Jim Messina yeah. on uh, uh, Telecaster. Uh, 
with the bass player, uh, is the guy that plays for the Eagles now, uh, uh, Timothy B. Smith. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I tell you, to me, that was uh, back in, in the early 70s, late, late 60s, early 70s, Poco defined country rock. Right. I mean, it was like their their playing was impeccable, their harmonies were just just fantastic, you know, and, and, and so so anyway, every time I would listen to that, that uh, live Poco record, it would just make my blood boil. Oh, you better think twice about leaving me behind. Make up your mind about what you're gonna do. You take my advice. Oh, woman, you've got to choose. Take a little time. You've got nothing more to do. You know, and I tell you, Rusty Young was was the first steel player that I knew of. That when he played live, he played through two B three cabinets. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, he 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 would do uh, uh, kind of kind of B three licks on his pedal steel. And I and I actually started doing that. I uh, and of course I didn't have the, the big uh, the big Leslie B three cabinets, yeah. but I, but I found a found a Fender. A Fender used to make this little kind of miniature it was about the size of a just a regular guitar amp yeah it's it's called a fender vibratone and it was like it's like a, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like the size of a 212 cab but it's uh it, yeah it's a leslie yeah, it's a leslie yeah. spinning um baffle totally, yeah. totally totally man and and i'll tell you i started using that thing and i just loved it you know and and it and when you're getting that tone it it makes you play differently it makes you makes you yeah. think like a b3 player yeah, totally. uh and uh, so anyway, you know, that, uh, I just love that stuff, you know. And then, and then I got, uh, got myself a little uh, a thing that I could plug into my steel called a Boss Tone. Have you ever used a Boss Tone? No. Yeah, a Boss Tone about the size of a gosh, I mean, like not that much bigger than than like a matchbook. It, like a you know, it's just a, just a little nine volt battery uh, distortion unit that that, I, that you actually plug into the end of the steel. And and so I started using that because. Uh, Oh, a lot, a lot of the guys in Nashville were using it to, to try to simulate a violin sound. Oh, okay. Uh, because it's a real, it's a real active distortion. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so it's, yeah, you have to keep a, a good solid note going through it all the time, or it just goes goes nuts. Right. So I started using that and uh, getting getting these all these weird rock and roll sounds, you know. And people, like I said, would come up and say, "Man, that sounds like Jimmy, sounds like Jimi Hendrix," you know. So I, <laughs> so I started doing that, and and then with with Joe Ely. Uh, I did it even more because, uh, uh, you know, Joe. You were kind of yeah. You were kind of bridging the gap between rock and country with those with that. Band, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And in fact, I've I've still got my original Boss Tone that I bought in uh, in, in 1970 or 71. I paid fifteen dollars for it at a, nice. at a music store. So around your house, um, you obviously like your dad was musical, and and they so he his generation had their own Mains Brothers band. And then how did that turn into you and your brothers having the Mains Brothers? Well, uh, my, my dad and, and uh, two of his brothers uh, had, had a weekend band that, that they called the Mains Brothers Band. They, you know, they just played. I mean, I mean they, they were all, uh, my dad was a farmer. and uh, Okay. So, so, you know, he, he definitely didn't do it for a living, but it was just just a weekend they thing. Were, they were weekend warriors. Yeah, yeah, weekend warriors. And, and they played uh, uh, really rough 
rough and tumble okay. nightclubs uh, on the weekend. And so, so when my brothers and I started singing, we uh, uh, like long before we started playing instruments, we yeah. uh, we sang you know uh, okay. gospel songs. You know, and then we started learning a few a few country songs. And, and so my dad, I mean, you know, we were only literally we were like I was in the seventh grade, sixth grade. Uh, you know, and my brothers were were a couple of grades lower. But my dad would take us to these nice. bars and and. Uh, and then maybe maybe uh, over the course of the night he might get us up uh, to sing just a couple of songs. You know, of course everybody thought the drunker the crowd was, the better we <laughs> sounded for sure. Uh, but but, but uh, you know, you know, everybody thought we were we were just great. And uh, and so, so I started playing acoustic guitar when I was in about the eighth grade. And then I taught my brothers uh, how to play. And then and then one brother started playing bass. Uh, and uh, my youngest brother was, was just too young, and I mean he was he was just okay. still a baby. Uh, so 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 he didn't play drums back then, but it, but he eventually became our drummer. Oh wow, okay. Uh, so so we we had a, we had a, we had a friend that played drums. We had a friend that played yeah. fiddle. So there's four four brothers or five brothers. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, four brothers and, and one sister. Oh, okay. And then uh, we had a, had a friend that did fiddle. So so we we started started uh, kind of got together and rehearsed a bit and. Uh, and and so our, our first gig yeah, that we did, I, I think I was a freshman in high school, and it was a New Year's Eve gig in, in Slayton, Texas, uh, home home of Bobby Keys. Yeah, you know, man. Bobby Keys, the sax yeah. player. He just he just died last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, but anyway, it was Slayton, Texas, Catholic, uh, this Catholic hall. It was like a Catholic New Year's Eve dance, and I remember we had a Fender bassman. Uh, one of those piggyback basement yeah. amps, you know, the cream color yeah. with a with a with a head on yeah. top, and so we uh, it had four inputs. So so I plugged my electric <laughs> guitar in one input, the fiddle player used one input, the bass player used one input, and then we had one input for the vocal for the vocal Perfect. mic. And I remember we we didn't have a, a microphone stand, so we took coat hangers <laughs> and 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 hung the the microphone very very uh, strategically from from the Raptors Excellent. and I uh, got it to where it was just a good vocal, you know, a good level for the vocal. And uh, so, so we did, we did a four hour dance Holy and shit. just, you know, no, and the crowd didn't know the difference. We had, a, we had a, uh, actually, this is before we had drums. This is just fiddle and, and us three guys. And, uh, and this is back before uh, acoustic guitars were, you know, had pickups right, on them. Right. So, so my brother, my brother that played acoustic was just playing acoustic unamplified. You know, you could, uh, I guess you could hear it a little bit. But anyway, the, the crowd could care less. Yeah, man, I bet that sounded cool too. I, I've always, I've always dug that you know multiple instruments coming from one source. Anyway, like that probably sounded pretty, pretty, pretty oh, awesome. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we we didn't know any different. Sure. You know, I mean, we we thought it was great. Yeah. You know, and of course, I'd, uh, I probably wouldn't want to hear a recording of it at this <laughs> point, but. Uh, so so anyway, you know, we we started after that. We started playing VFW Hall, yeah. and, and it kind of kind of worked worked into a thing. And uh, you know, long time down the road, my, my my youngest brother started playing drums with us. And we it's like we kind of started taking it seriously. This, this was um, uh, this 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 kid thing was long before Ely. And then and then after we got out of high school, uh, a couple of my brothers went off to college. Yeah. Uh, I started playing with Joe Ely, and and I played with Ely really really. Uh, steadily all through the the seventies, and then uh, with the Mains brothers, were you playing guitar or steel or both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Mains brothers, uh, uh, guitar and steel. Once I got my steel, I, I stayed on steel almost all the time. But I played a little bit of guitar okay. uh, with the Mains brothers, and then and then once once I played with Ely for those ten years, 
Uh, and by that time, I already had a family. I, 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 you know, I got married really early, and, and we had our kids real early. So by the time I had played with Ely for ten years, my kids were were starting to starting to, to you know first first and second grade. Right. And I just felt like you need to uh, because at that point, uh, you know, Ely had done uh, we had done three or four records on MCA. Yeah. We had toured with toured with the Clash. We had toured with the Rolling Stones, uh, Linda Ronstadt. I mean, it was it was just a, a great run with Ely. Yeah. But I, I really, I really couldn't stay on the road anymore. It's like, like uh, Joe was about to go out for nine weeks, Holy shit. and yeah, uh, that'll... I, I, I just, I just felt like I really needed to, to be with my kids. Yeah. You know, it's like, like every time we would leave, uh, leave for the, for a road trip with Ely, and then I would get back and and see my kids. I, my kids had changed so much just in the two or three weeks that we'd be gone. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, and it that, that was an unsettling feeling for me. Yeah. So I. Yeah, you know, I, I just went to Joe and said, "Man, I just I, I love your music. I absolutely live and breathe your music, but I I just can't be gone mm-hmm. for for as long as you need to be gone now." And he was totally understanding. Yeah. yeah. And he said, "Look, he said, look, I'm I'm not going to replace you. Anytime you can play, still oh, cool. with us, you play. Yeah. Anytime you can't, you can't." So it was, he was wow. absolutely so so understanding yeah. on that. I still play with Joe from time to yeah. time. You know, still uh, play on his records from time to time. So, so we still got a great relationship. Um, was he just a guy around town that you met or like, what was, how did you originally run into him and start playing with him? Well, you know, the first time I met Joe, he was with a, he and Jimmy Gilmore and Butch Hancock had started a band. Flatlanders. Uh, just kind of accidentally called the Flatlanders. Yeah. And, uh, I know that this, this older friend of mine uh, named Sylvester Rice uh, played, played bass for him. I think he played bass and I mean, he, he was a lot older than they were. And, and I think that he might've, he and, and one of his buddies helped to finance uh, their very first recording, which was not the, the one on Plantation. It was like a uh, they went down to like Midland or uh, not to Odessa or San Angelo or somewhere to a little studio mm-hmm. there, uh, and did like an overnight recording. Literally, they they the way they could get the best rate on the studio was to record after midnight. So, so they, so they went down there and, and recorded after midnight and they recorded about 14 songs in, in the one night, just straight yeah. up, straight up. Yeah. Everything totally live. A lot of first records were made that way, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. And this one was recorded on a, uh, I, I've never seen a three track machine, but this was a, a three track <laughs> recorder. That's what actually I talked to um, David hood, the bass player from muscle shoals. And, and he said, in fame studios, the original machine was a three track. Yeah. 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 So I guess it was a thing back yeah. then, you know, th- this would have been oh man, late sixties, early seventies. I can't remember exactly. I think it might've been 1970 or 71 when they recorded this. This is before you were playing with him. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 This is actually before I met oh, okay. him. Uh, but anyway, they, they did that and then they came back to love it. We're just gigging around and playing little funky bars. <laughs> and so, uh, so this friend of mine, Sylvester, took me out to hear him, and, uh, and that's where I met Joe for the first time. 
and uh, I thought they were they were great. And uh, and Joe played really great harmonica. I mean, I mean, I don't. A lot of people don't realize, it, but Joe's a really good harp uh-huh. player. So 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 I was working at a, a recording studio in Lubbock, and every now and then we would need a harp player. So I, I oh. had Joe's phone number, so I'd call him up, and and he'd come over and, and uh, play on uh, on uh, a lot a lot of gospel records. You know, in Lubbock, uh, those those farmers around there would would get you know up in their fifties and sixties, uh, uh, fifty sixty years old, and they would all. Uh, want to repent for their sins, <laughs> so they so they they would all want to do a, a gospel record. Okay. I mean, I mean, this you know this guys, man, I, I can't tell you how many gospel records I played on back in those days. Really? But so in about nineteen seventy three, uh, Joe called me and he said, uh, he said, man, I'm trying to raise raise enough money to to move to Austin. Uh-huh. You know, he said, so I'm, I'm I'm doing a gig tonight at a place called the Main Street Saloon, and he said, I've got. I've got my guitar player. Uh, I had a guitar player named Rick Hewlett back in those days, and had a bass player named Greg Wright. I'd love you to c- come out and play steel, and we're just going to just play two nights in a row, Friday, Saturday, and then I'm going to move to Austin. I said, "Sure, I'll come out." Yeah. You know, but I thought it was going to be. It was, I thought it was going to be a little weird with no drums, but but I, I got out there totally unrehearsed, uh, and Joe got up there and, and did a few of his original songs, a few Butch songs, a few Jimmy songs, yeah. and, and a few Hank Williams songs. Okay. And I tell you that the crowd went absolutely bananas. Nuts. Really? And uh and uh yeah, yeah. So so I mean we we played two nights and you know, it's like this is like this is nineteen seventy three, early seventy three, and you know, I think we made like fifty bucks a piece and Joe was like, Wow, you know, because because the place was packed. It was a good crowd Friday, it was packed on Saturday. Yeah. So so we made some pretty good money. Joe Joe had enough to move and he wanted to move and he said, you know, this this was fun, let's do it again <laughs> next weekend. So we played the next so we did the next weekend, and I tell you, the next weekend, uh, this this bar, uh, the Main Street Saloon, was right across from from the Texas Tech campus, and I tell you, the people were lined up for a, a full block to get wow. in. You know, it, it's like it was this word spread. Yeah. Uh, jo, Joe Joe hit a nerve somehow. Uh-huh. Word, uh, word, word spread, and I mean, it's like it just exploded from there. It, it was it was jam packed both those nights he made we made really good money for those days and then after that joe said you know i'm just gonna and i'm just gonna stay here for a while you guys want to want to try to make this happen so so we started rehearsing yeah. uh working up joe's original stuff yeah. uh original stuff about butch hancock jimmy gilmore did you bring in a then, drummer at, the, at that point thankfully thankfully <laughs> we we got a drummer and i tell you it, it it happened so quick after that i mean we we, we did some demos uh we sent them to uh, uh, actually Jerry Jeff Walker somehow got a hold of these demos and he played them for a guy named Jack Parker who was a, a kind of an A and R guy for MCA okay. and and by by 1970 uh, let's see all, we started playing in '73 with Joe yeah. and uh, either late '75 or '76 we were Joe had signed with MCA and we were. In Nashville with a guy named Chip Young. Was the first one Honky Tonk Masquerade? Is that the the first one you played on? No, uh, uh, the first one was just called Joe Ely. Oh, okay. So you're on that one too, right? Yeah, yeah. I did. I did all those back in those days. We uh, first one was just called Joe yeah. Ely. The second one was Honky Tonk Masquerade, and those were both Chip Young produced. Okay.
MCA, I guess, wanted to, to branch out a bit. So so they got Bob Johnson. Wow. You know who yeah, Bob Johnson sure. uh, Bob Johnson produced one. We, we went to Seattle and spent two weeks there recording a record called Down on the Drag. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that was just kind of a weird time. I, I don't think we really nailed it on that one at all. Huh, interesting. Uh, and and uh, Joe, Joe was never happy with that okay. one. But, but then we came back, and by this time, Joe had kind of, met up with the clash somewhere and uh, the clash became very very interested in joe and we we opened a lot of clash shows then we did a, a record in austin with a, a guy named michael brofsky was, was a producer and, and that was the one that, that really really put joe over the top as far as far as like being a you know he, he was always in the gray area mca never really knew what to right. do with joe because we, we were we were too country for rock yeah. and too rock for country yeah. so like uh yeah, you know, you know, this would this would have been modern day Americana, right. but they didn't. You know, they didn't have that uh, that name back then. So uh, anyway, we did a record called Mustanata Godalot, yeah, and which was so uh, just was was that like eighty one or eighty two or something? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It was, and that, and also during that time, we went to England and did a live record, which the uh, the Clash set in on a couple of songs, and it was called Love a Calling. The first couple, uh, particularly Honky Tonk Masquerade, I love. I love that record too. Um, what were those sessions like for those albums? Were, like you guys were kind of ticking along as a as a unit. So was it pretty much like set up and play live in the studio, or was there some? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chip Young had this uh, had this uh, uh, log cabin set up as a studio, yeah. and uh, there was enough room. It had a couple of ISO booths. Uh, and and we could we could get our amps far enough away from each other. We had, we had a guitar player named Jesse Jesse Taylor yeah. who was just a, just a powerhouse player. Yeah. Uh, and and we we both we both played pretty loud. I mean, I, I was playing through a through a PB uh, uh, session four hundred back in those days, okay. and it's like the, you know that would that would pump uh, a lot of wattage, really 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 pump a lot <laughs> a lot of uh, dBs, yeah. man. And uh, I forget what Jesse was playing, playing through. Any any overdubbing going on at all, or was it all just like pretty much what you hear is what you get? The only time that I would overdub, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know how old you are, but but like in the back in the seventies, it was kind of. And I'm not sure who started this. It might have been. Russ Hicks or or Weldon Murray, but uh, was kind of going through a, a time period where people would would play a steel part yeah. and then double it, double it in 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 lieu of of uh, uh, playing through a through a stereo chorus or anything like that. Actually, physically reproduce it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Physically, just just double the steel part. So so I did that a lot. I, you know, I would go back and just you know if it was a part that I that I could memorize and and play as close to exact okay. uh, that I would do that but it, uh, it gave, gave a, good, a good effect I thought
sometimes I would I would double it verbatim. Sometimes I'd work out a harmony. Right. You got to zone in, especially on the steel. You as a steel player, you'll know that playing steel. I'd, I had this guy. Uh, I was doing a session here in, in Austin one time, and and the piano player. Uh, uh, I, I was like overdubbing a solo or something. The piano player was standing there staring at me, <laughs> and and so I finished, uh, and I said, "Man, are you okay?" He said, "He said I was just watching you play." He said, "That's got to be like." like try to roller skate on ball bearings. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, uh, you know what? Yeah. So you mentioned working with Bob Johnson, who um, at that point was kind, of a, kind yeah. of a legend coming off those Dylan records that he did and stuff. Um, did you learn anything from him? Or you mentioned that the experience wasn't exactly that successful. Yeah, Bob Johnson was, was a good guy. And, you know, it's like he was, I mean, this was at the peak of his career. Right. He, he, had, he had produced Aretha Franklin. He had produced... Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison, yes. uh, the Bob Dylan records. He uh, Simon and Garfunkel. I mean, he produced the entire soundtrack for uh, for the Graduate. Right, I mean, yeah. I'm just not so sure that it was a that was a good fit for Joe. I mean, uh, he 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 worked hard. He you know he did his job, mm-hmm. uh, brought his own engineer. So it was a, a learning experience. Yeah. Uh, was it kind of a clash in some way? Like, was did Joe and him not see eye to eye? No, no, there was, there was, no, no, everybody got along great. Okay. Everybody got along great. Yeah, it's, just, it's just maybe the, the it was, it, it seemed a, that uh, it was hard to keep the focus. You know, mm-hmm. it was kind of a, uh, in fact, there was, there was one song that Joe did uh, that he wrote called, uh, it was called Maria. It was a song about New Year's Eve, spending New Year's Eve alone. So Bob Johnson thought that, that the band wasn't really getting into it like we should. And so overnight he had a, he had a decorating company or, or like, like a party party decorating company come in <laughs> and, and overnight they decorated the entire studio like a new year's Eve party, wow. you know, and those are the days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, and he bought these, these clear kind of weird masks that you, uh, you know, that, that you might see on Friday the 13th, like yeah. these, uh, it's like, like a clear mask that you put over your face sort of distorts your and face. it still shows the, still shows the features of your face, but it makes it, it just looks creepy. Super creepy. Yeah, yeah. So, so he bought us all these masks, <laughs> and if you and if you ever see that that uh, that record, you know the the uh, uh, the actual record of Down on the Drag. If you open up the the artwork, uh-huh. or I mean, open up the jacket, you'll you'll see a picture of those masks. It's, it's very very strange, <laughs> very strange. All of us guys in the band were from, from Lubbock. It's like we, you know, he, he decorated the thing. He tried to get us fired up with decorations. Yeah. And it's like we walked in and we were like, man, this is just weird. You know, so, so like, like we were just unimpressed, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, I don't know, the, the end result wasn't what we wanted, but, but the, the experience was good. Uh-huh. I mean, it was, it was great, great work with Bob Johnson. And I mean, he was, he was kind of a crazy guy yeah. and, uh, it was okay, but it but it wasn't our best work. Right. You mentioned um, just eventually having to to pull off the road and 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 get out of the Ely scene a little bit. Um, and uh, what was the transition like for you going into more of a production session role? Like, did you have work lined up that you were like, okay, I'm going to stay home and be able to dive into this, or were you kind of just like, I got to get off the road and figure something out? Oh no, no, I, I, 
I actually never stopped doing uh, doing sessions. I mean, I, uh, I started doing sessions in 1972, 73. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, there in Lubbock, it was like, like I said, uh, it was a lot of, a lot of gospel records, yep. uh, country gospel records, uh, commercials, anything that would come through the door, I, I would latch on to. Sometimes I would produce, sometimes I would just play. Uh, so I, I was, I was always doing that. And so, so when I got off the road, I just kind of dug into that more. Oh, oh and also I'm, I'm forgetting a very, very important thing. In, in 1977, uh, this guy, another guy from Lubbock, a guy named Terry Allen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know Terry yeah, Allen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I wanted to ask you about him. This friend of, friend of mine, uh, Paul Milosevich, he's an artist, uh, called and said, Terry Allen wants to do a record and he wants to call it Lubbock on everything. And it's going to be a double record. And so anyway, Paul, uh, Terry and I, uh, Terry, Terry was older than me. Uh, let's see, I'm 65. Terry's 71 or 72 now. Uh, and he was raised in Lubbock, raised, but, but I'd never met him at that point. And so uh, Terry came into town with a, with a notebook full of songs, like 22 songs. And we said, sat there and and I, I listened to him play these songs and I was absolutely blown yeah. away it, it's, I'd never heard anything like that I mean there were just these riveting songs about growing up in West Texas and that point I, I had done you know some, some good original stuff with, with joe i mean joe's songs were great too uh but anyway so i, I wound up uh uh terry and i co-produced the the love of everything record uh you know billboard picked it as one of the most most uh, influential uh country records of the 70s uh, you know so like like, like during that time it, it the the actual record production thing and and working in the studio and uh, helping people make records really hit home to me, and I and I knew that that's what I wanted to do ultimately. Okay. And the uh, playing live and everything was fun too, but I, I really enjoyed hearing the music come back over the speakers and and knowing that you know, hey, this music might be around a hundred years from now. You know, it's like yeah. you know, and I and I tr- and I truly believe that that, that that some of the records that I've done, even though uh, you know I haven't worked with any of the uh, w- with many of the, of the really big Nashville country. Artist, uh, I've had a chance to, to work with some of them, and I, I totally cherish all those ideas. Uh, but man, the, the uh, Terry Allen and the Joe Ely stuff mm-hmm. to me could be put into a time capsule and opened up fifty or hundred years from now, and people would go, "Wow!" Yeah, man. Particularly that Lubbock on Everything record. Um, tell me about how you pr- how you approached producing an artist like that, and what were what were the actual sessions like um, for you as a producer? Yeah, you know, it was pretty pretty unconventional. Uh, uh, let's see, we had a uh, I brought in a drummer. Uh, my brother played bass on oh, it. Cool. That was pretty much it: drums, bass, Terry uh, Terry Allen on piano, and that, and then I played acoustic guitar on all the all the tracking. Oh, okay. And and it had to be. We had to do it heads up. We had to do it uh, totally live yeah. because uh, Terry Allen uh, he, he is an absolute consummate writer, consummate artist. But he has his own sense of time. Right. Uh, in other words, you, you know, anything that, that you might have learned uh, 
from any kind of music teacher or music school about timing. Yeah. If you if you're gonna do a Terry Allen uh, session, you might as well throw that out the window. <laughs> do you mean do you mean his phrasing or his actual like? Yeah, yeah, the, the phrasing and 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 like, and like meter meter wise, yeah. you know, there may be some pretty stretchy stuff. Five beat measures right. here and maybe three three beat measure. Uh, so as an acoustic guitar player, on that you need to be on your toes, obviously. Uh, on your toes and like the, I mean, we we just learned early on uh, that there's no. It, it was a futile effort to try to. To, to straighten it out, right, you know, to right. have him have him straighten it out because that just wasn't in his DNA, which frankly, now, now when we play those songs, it sounds absolutely of natural course. to me. So, yeah. so, so, so I'm, I'm glad that we didn't try to straighten yeah. them out. Also, also another thing that we had to deal with is that uh, we had a, had a five foot eight, uh, grand piano in the studio. That's, that's just the only piano we had. Mm-hmm. But, but when, when Terry Allen plays, uh, he stomps his right foot like like a kick drum, <laughs> and 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 he always hit would, would hit the the sustain pedal. Oh, okay. And there was you know instead of trying to get him to stop that, we just we we mocked it. It's like we it's part we of just, the thing. We made it a part of a part of the sound. That's cool. That was the only right decision because uh, <laughs> there's no way that he that he could stop doing it. You know, and, and consequently, you know, Terry, even though he's you know he'll admit he's he's not. Uh, he, he's not Bruce Hornsby, uh-huh. you know. It's like he it, Terry plays his own his own thing, and I tell you, man, when, when he lays down a groove, it's there. Right, it's right. it's like uh, really good. So so anyway, uh, long story short, we we cut the twenty two tracks, maybe a little over a day and a half. I mean, the, the nice. first first day we went in, we worked. We started in the morning. We didn't stop playing until two a.m. Yeah. Uh, so so we got most of them down then, and then, and then came back the next day and. And uh, cut him. Uh, uh, all Terry's vocals are live. No, no punch ins. You know, he didn't really, didn't really want to punch in. Right. And and it would have been tough anyway yeah, because like you, you have bleed on the, on the piano mics. Yeah. And were you involved in the engineering side and also the mixing side of those records, or did you have? You know, uh, the, the mixing. I, you know, I, I was there. I, I, I'm not much of an engineer. I, okay. uh, back during the analog days, uh, when everything was analog, uh, you know, I started off recording on a, on a uh, two-track Ampex, graduated to a four-track Scully, graduated to a, to an eight-track Scully, you know, and then and then finally sixteen, and then twenty-four. I could engineer a bit, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I could do the uh, punch-ins. I mean, I, I was a really, really confident punch-in guy right. because uh, a lot of engineers w- w- were afraid to punch in because, you know, when you when you punch in on analog, what was there is now gone, you know? Yeah. So, like, so like uh, a, a lot of guys were real. Yeah, totally. you got to make that commitment. And, uh, you know, my, I had pretty good timing uh, since I was a rhythm sure. player. And so it's, I, I, I rarely, I mean, I think out of my entire career, I might have botched one punch in. You know, it's just it's just a matter of counting and, and punching on the downbeat. That's beat, pretty you good, know? man. So you're back at home. You're, you start making the records um, uh, in the studio there. And um, how many kids did you have at that point? Was it you've got two or three kids or something? Two. <laughs> Two, okay. I've got the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kim, Kim, and Natalie. Okay. And so, uh, Natalie, obviously, everybody knows her as 
um, a member of the Dix- oh, yeah. Dixie Chicks. Um, was she was oh, yeah. she playing as a kid? Like, were you kind of encouraging that around the house and stuff? I, I never, I never encouraged it. Uh, uh, believe me, I mean, if, uh, you know, you've, you've heard stories about uh, about kids just being born with it, you yeah. know, and and there's no doubt about no doubt about the fact Natalie was born with it because when she was three or four years old, I mean, I mean, she'd be singing along with, uh, you know, records or, uh, yeah, it, it, I remember she was a huge, uh, Grease fan, you know, where the movie <laughs> Grease came out. She, she knew all those songs and, 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 uh, even at, at four, four years old, she could sing harmony. I, you know, my wife and I were, were amazed would we'd just be listening to her and she was singing harmony parts, wow. you know, without, without being taught at all. Right. So, so she was hearing all this stuff. So, so I knew there was something, Special there, but I never, uh, my wife or, uh, or I, neither one ever pushed her at all okay. because, uh, you know, because I, I knew how hard the business was, yeah. you know, and I just, yeah, uh, of course, I think I was at, um, I think I was at Berkeley the same time she was, she was there. She went there for a couple of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually she went there just for one okay. year. She, uh, uh, she got a, we got a scholarship. She graduated high school a year early. She, she had enough she took enough advanced courses because she just she didn't like high school at all. She wanted to get okay. out, so she took advanced courses, and so she got to graduate as a junior. Okay. And uh, and then she went to a, a college there uh, near near uh, Lubbock called uh, South Plains College, which is in Leveland. Yeah. And then, but but she really wanted to go to Berkeley, so we we went. I, I took her to New Orleans for the for the uh, audition tryouts, whatever you call them. Uh, but, you know, she had to sing before a jury yeah. of, of teachers. I yes. did the same thing. And not singing, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, so she got a scholarship and uh, you know, she went for a year uh-huh. and, and she loved the school. She loved Berkeley, but uh, she just, she didn't get, get along with Boston that, that oh, well, really? because she, you know, she was a, a little small, you know, a little short, cute, blue eyed blonde. You know, I mean, as you know, Berkeley is a nice school, but it, it's located in kind of a rough part of yeah. town. And, uh, I think it's le- less rough now than it was back then, but but yeah, I totally know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so like she couldn't leave the dorm without being with a group of people, right, you know. Right. James Taylor came and and gave a gave a talk. I time. totally was there. Did you go to the? Were yeah. you there? Yeah. So so like at that point, uh, you know, you know, all all the time Natalie was growing up, uh, uh, any vacations that we'd go on, there there were two. Uh, this is this is like back during cassettes. Uh, there, there were two cassettes that we always took on our vacations to play in the car. And that was James Taylor and the Indigo Girls. Okay. And, uh, I mean, so like Natalie knew every James Taylor song there was, but by the time she went to college, so, so she got to, she was excited. She called us. She said, wow, I'm, I'm going to hear James Taylor speak tonight. Yeah. And then, and then she got one of her friends to take a, just a really quick, as, as James Taylor was, was walking, I guess, back to his dressing room or whatever. Natalie stuck her hand out and, and he shook her hand just briefly. And a friend of hers took the picture oh, really? and, and, uh, so she sent it to us. So, so, and then, and then, you know, as fate would have it, uh, only a few years later, the Dixie chicks and James Taylor did, uh, uh one of those Nashville shows called, uh, cross uh, country crossroads oh, yeah. where, where the, where the chicks did James Taylor songs okay. and James Taylor did chick songs. Uh-huh. And it was all this collaborative effort, one, one band. And, 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 and I was luckily I got to, got to play in the band. Oh, cool. I played steel and a little bit of acoustic, yeah. uh, all, all those, those icons that, that, that Natalie had as a kid, she wound up being able to, to, to do music with them. Uh, uh, she's done shows with the Indigo girls, James Taylor, uh, you know, just recently, I don't know if you saw the, saw the Beyonce thing. I uh, did, yeah. 
at the CMAs. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, that, that blew me yeah, away. Killer. Blew me away. Did she come back to Texas and then, um, yeah, she came back to Texas after a year uh-huh. and, uh, she, you know, uh, was going to Texas tech. Just in fact, she told me at one point, she said, I, I'm, I'm going to tech. She said, you're wasting your money. She said, because all, all I want to do is sing. I just want to sing. And, and coincidentally, I had done, I had played on a couple of records uh, by the Dixie Chicks. This is way early on when, when the Chicks, the, the Dixie Chicks were still wearing cowboy hats uh-huh. and uh, cowgirl hats and dressing in sequins. I mean, you know, they were, Emily and Marty were really young. I mean, I mean Emily was like maybe 19 and just, and just playing the hell out of that banjo. I mean, yeah, she's I mean, great, these, eh? these girls. Oh man, man. Uh, you know, and Marty just, just totally second phenomenal fiddle. I mean, they were, they were ripping it up. So, so those were, those were the two girls and in, in the, in the early chicks that were just absolutely amazing. And they had met Natalie one time because they, they came through Lubbock and I, and I played with them at a little venue in Lubbock and we, we had them over to our house for, for dinner that night. And, uh, Natalie was just kind of came through, met them. And then, and then I think she might've gone to the show. I can't remember. So, so, so they, they barely knew each uh-huh. other. I mean, the, the Marty, Marty barely knew, but, but I had, I had given them a copy of the, the cassette that I did for this Berkeley audition. Right. And it was, uh, Natalie was singing, a, a Maria McKee song uh-huh. and an Indigo girl song, just two songs. Okay. Uh, uh, Marty and Emily had decided that, uh, uh, you know, that the, uh, uh, the original lead singer for the chicks, uh, was having a lot of vocal problems okay. and, uh, and uh, also, she was quite a bit older. She was she was thirteen years older than uh, than Marty and Emily, and she just was not was not doing well on the road and uh, was having some some vocal issues. So Marty called me at home and said, "Do you think Natalie would be interested in being our our lead singer?" And I said, "I said, you know, you you barely know her." And, you, and she said, "You know, we we know her well enough, and we we love the the cassette that we think she'd be perfect." And I said, well, I don't know. You know she's <laughs> only 18. It. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was literally trying to talk her out of it. I was like, I don't know, you know. And so I said, you know what, though? We'll, we'll let her decide. So I, I hung the phone up. I, I said, I'll, I'll call you back after I talked to her. I went in. And, and, you know, this is like literally two days after Natalie had said she just wasn't liking college and uh, all she wants to do is do sing. So I mentioned that to her. And of course she was elated. Right. And the answer was, of course. Yeah. And, and, and that was on a, that was on a Tuesday night. She loaded up the car and we, uh, let's see, I think she, she may have driven herself to Dallas. Yeah. Uh, that, was on, that was on a Tuesday. She drove herself to Dallas, rehearsed with the chicks, did the first gig. It was like a corporate gig in, in Florida. The, the following Tuesday, literally a week, a week from, from that phone call, uh-huh. Even when when she was a kid, she could soak up a song instantly. Really she she yeah. could she could sing the sing the lyrics back instantly. So she learned up. You, you learned uh, their set. They did a gig in Florida, and the rest of it is uh, continuing history. <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't realize you'd played on their records before that, but the first one that Natalie's on is um, Wide Open Spaces, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah. how was that session different for you as a musician? Because you're a musician on Wide Open Space. You didn't produce that, right? No, 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 no. no. That was produced by uh, Paul Worley, uh, right? Uh, uh, Paul Worley. Yeah. And- how are those sessions like? As the evolution of of the Dixie Chicks, obviously, it was a lot different. Um, were they? you know, trying to get a more commercially appealing sound going or something, or, or how is it different for you as a musician? Uh, it's kind of funny. The, the, uh, uh, the, the actual song, Wide Open Spaces, the chicks have been doing that live and, and their crowd were just eating it mm. up. They, they tried to get them to not do it on, on that first record because they felt like it wasn't country enough. Oh. And, uh, uh, and, and the, the chicks dug in their heels and I, and I, and I spoke up for them too. I, I mean, I told, uh, told the producers, I said, look, this, this song just, just absolutely appeals to their crowd. You, you know, this, trust me, this, you, know, yeah. you know, and at that point I thought it was just as much country as any of the other country girls that were out there on the radio, you know? But now she won't be coming back with the rest. If these are life's lessons, she'll take this. I mean, I think the chicks wanted wanted a successful record, so they they did a couple songs that maybe I mean they, they did a couple songs that, that they never did live afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean they they put them on there because they were being pitched songs from every angle you can imagine, yeah. and so they chose a couple of songs that they uh, I think maybe just to appease. Uh, Sony uh, and 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 all the people that were trying to try to get in their into their heads, yeah. but but those are songs that they never did live. Okay. So uh, so yeah, I mean uh, I think there were maybe a couple of throwaways on there, but they named the record "What of Spaces." It was album of the year, song of the year. So uh, uh, and I think what was really interesting about about this is that when the, when they first came on the scene, of course Emily played the hell out of the banjo. Marty could fiddle with anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, their their harmonies were great, but but uh, uh, and this is a fact. Uh, uh, Sony, uh, I'm not sure who in Sony, but but when they did their meeting with Sony, they said, you know, the the banjo is just not going to work in, in in today's country right. market. Right. And and uh, the way I understand it, uh, I, I wasn't in the meeting, but I heard about it. Natalie, Natalie stood up and said, you've got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding This is our sound. you got to love our when, when five dudes in suits are making decisions about your band for you, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, she, so, so, so the, you know, they dug in their heels. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and uh, what's, what's funny about that is, is when they had their very first single, I think it was called uh, I Can Love You Better, and, better, than, better Than That, and then, and then the second one was called, uh, I can't think what the second one is, uh, was, but it was... Uh, uh, it had a banjo intro, like a really funky banjo intro. Okay. Man, after that, this this friend of mine, this uh, this this acoustic player from Nashville, Mark Stevens, you no. know him. And really, uh, during that time, he was like one of the, one of the first call acoustic guys. He was just a really great acoustic yeah. player. And I and I saw him after the Chicks had their first couple of singles and and were really really taken off. And he said, "Man, I want you to, I want you to tell those girls thanks a lot because." Uh, uh, Mark also plays banjo. Uh, Mark has Stevens, and, and he said since they uh, had their their first couple of singles, he said every time that I get a call uh, for acoustic, they always say bring your banjo. Wasn't different, was the same old story, and dear John, and so along. 
you tell me just a bit about the the sessions for that record? Like, was it done pretty uh, um, organically, or was it done all like with a lot of overdubs, or how was that approached? Well, uh, actually, all the music uh, musically, it was pretty much straight up. Uh, I didn't overdub much. Uh-huh. Uh, it was. Uh, were they doing all their vocals live and everything? They were definitely in the booth singing. Uh-huh live with us and uh and also the, the chicks have great ideas i mean they have great musical ideas so so even though Worley Worley's a great great producer uh and and actually Worley was was playing uh paul Worley was playing acoustic in in the the tracking band okay. but i'll tell you the chicks have um, amazingly good ideas uh musically and, and arrangement wise right. so so they, you know when, when they didn't hold back they didn't hold back if they had an idea or, or if they didn't like something that was going on musically they'd speak mm-hmm. up which I, I I love that about an artist, yeah. you know, to to speak up speak up now and not six months from now, you yeah, know, totally. So so they they did have to overdub all their all their vocals, uh-huh. uh, lead vocal and harmonies. As a steel player, did you find that like playing on a record, um, wide open spaces must have been one of the bigger records that you'd played on at that point. That was a huge record. Um, did that have yeah. did that have an impact for you as a session musician as well? I'm not sure about the actual, uh, I mean, I, I just kind of treated the session as, as any other session. Uh, you know, I, I always try to try to do something to, to nail it. But, but the one, the one thing I remember, cause I mean, you, we're talking back in, uh, what was this? 98, right. maybe yeah. the one, the one thing that I do remember is that my, my steel uh, station where they had me set up, I could, I could kind of lean a little bit to the right and I could see, I had a perfect view of, of, of all three girls. Uh-huh in their, in their, uh, vocal booth. And I remember several times during the session, I just, I just was like, kind of, it, it was almost surreal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing my kid in there doing this thing yeah. and, uh, you know, with, with, with two other great, great artists and, and all these players that, you know, I, I just kind of had to like, you know, glorious, yeah, uh, feeling that, you know, that, you know, that my kid was in there doing this thing and, and that I was lucky enough to be, to be able to, to be a part That's of pretty it. pretty amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering if you could tell me how going to the album Home, you went from being the session guy that had played on all all of their records to uh, I, th- I think you co-produced that one with them. Um, and, yeah. it, and it's a different sounding record. It's a bit more bluegrassy, like a bit more um, or maybe a lot more um, organic sounding. Was that a oh, conscious yeah. decision? Oh, and, and how did you approach producing that record? Well, you know, uh, just a little background on that one. You know, the reason that they decided to to do home on their own is, uh, is because I, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but, but the first record was wild Place. The second record was fly. Yeah. And like, like both those records sold gazillion. Oh man. I mean, uh, just millions and millions of records. Yeah. And without getting too, too detailed, you know, the, the chicks just felt like that they, uh, you know, the chicks and their management felt like, like selling that many million, millions of records, it wouldn't be reflected in their royalties. Oh, okay. So they, they, they made a, a united effort between them. Hey, look, we want to, we want to audit. We, we want a detailed audit uh-huh. of our sales yeah. through Sony. Yeah. So to get that, they had to sue Sony. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can, you can probably go back and uh, read those details, but they, they, they did. Mm-hmm. And, and found out that they had a whole lot of whole lot more money coming. So so while all that was being settled, uh, were they still signed to Sony and, while they were suing them? Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Makes it interesting. Oh yeah, and 
And so, so what they did, and uh, they said, okay, well, you know, this is going to take a long time. So we're not going to sit around and, and wait. So, so what they did, they, they pu- pulled their, their own money together yeah. and they came to me and they said, we want you to produce our record because we know we can trust you. Yeah. We know you'll, you'll do it right. Yeah. And they said, we want to make it no drums, yeah. no electric guitars at all, strictly acoustic. Yeah. And I said, heck, heck yeah, in. let's do it. So, so we, you know, yeah. so, so we, we started, we, we did some rehearsals at Natalie's house, at Marty's house. It, uh, it was, this is when they both lived in Austin. Uh-huh. They brought Marty. Marty, they they really like Marty Stewart. They brought Marty Stewart in, yeah. and they wrote a couple of songs with Marty Stewart. Yeah. You know, we just we just went into uh, a little studio here called Cedar Creek. Uh, they, they we looked at several studios, and that was one they felt most comfortable yeah. in. We went in there in, in, in two different time frames, and uh, we did bring in some some Nashville guys: Brian Sutton on guitar, yeah. Adam Steffi on mando. Yeah. Uh, uh, the bass player, oh, I should know the bass player's name. He, uh, the bass player used to play with Nickel Creek, an older guy, uh, Byron House. Oh, okay. Byron uh-huh. House. And then, and then on, the, on the second group of sessions, we, we recorded, uh, uh, actually, we, we had to we had to cancel the first group of sessions because it was 2001, oh, right after okay. the, the 9-11 thing. Right. So we canceled for a while. And then regrouped end of November, and we cut the first six songs, and then they came, ba- came back in February, and... Uh, uh, Byron House couldn't come back then, uh, and so we used a, a guy named Glenn Fukunaga, uh, who, who actually still tours with uh-huh. them uh, for the second group. By this time, the you know, you know and uh, at this point, the chicks were financing their own thing. By this time, the suit was settled. Uh, Sony actually, uh, one of the things in, in the the settlement was that Sony had to set up a separate label for the chicks. Wow. So the chicks. Uh, you know, Sony wound up financing the record, and anyway, it turned out to be a really great record. I mean, I mean, the the, the chicks' performance on it, the selection of songs were, were it was absolutely riveting. Did you set them up in a, like, was it in, in one room and, and very much like a bluegrass session, or did you kind of treat it somewhere between that and a, and a pop no, session? No, no, we, we treated it more like a, more like a, like a pop session. I mean, uh, the girls, it was, uh, actually it was kind of, kind of like we did the other stuff. The girls were all in the same room, uh, set on three mics. Uh, luckily they were isolated. Since we didn't have drums, we didn't have a bunch of cymbals getting all over everything, but, uh, uh, we were all pretty isolated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Sutton and I think Brian Sutton. He's was, like a uh, he's like a freight train of rhythm for that guy. Oh, he's fantastic, yeah. fantastic. But uh, we were all separated enough to where we didn't have any bleed issues, you know. So so when we get into the mix, uh-huh. we didn't have to deal with a bunch of bunch of that. Uh, was she doing the banjo stuff live or? She was doing it live, but but uh, she had to go back and okay. Uh, you know, this this studio studio that we were in was pretty small, yeah. pretty small. So there was just wasn't enough ISO boost where we could get separation. Uh-huh. So, so all the banjo fiddle and, uh, uh, Natalie's guitar and all the vocals had to be over. Okay. Uh, th- there was one song. I, uh, I take it back. There was one song that, that everything was live and, and, and Natalie wanted to do it that way because, 
because there were, there was no harmonies. So, so she could sing, sing the whole thing. We set up and it was a song written by Randy Foster on that record. Uh, that was a live vocal. We, we were sitting Natalie in a room all by herself with a kind of candlelight and, and I tried to re- really create a good, a good atmosphere. And, and so, so that was the only song on the record that was live. Sweet Can you tell me what you're what you're up to right now? Like, what's in store for you as a session guy and producer? Do you have some things coming down the pipe? Yeah, oh, listen, I, I tell you, I work I work every week. Uh, I mean, I, I can I can tell you some of the ones I've uh, done recently. One one guy that you might know that I I just finished uh, well about about four months ago finished uh, his the tenth record that I produced on him. A guy named Wayne the Train Hancock. Yeah, Do you know yeah, him? for sure. He is, he's fantastic. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, he's the, he's a real deal. If you never heard, if you never heard Wayne Hancock, uh, you know, all your listeners out there, you should check him out. He's, he's like, uh, thirties and thirties, forties country music, but he does it with such fierceness and, 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 uh, and like just, just balls to the wall that, it, that it's almost, almost like listening to a really good rock record. Yeah, man. Two Tons of Steel out of San Antonio that I've done about eight records on. Uh, I just finished another one on them. Uh, uh, this guy, really good. He used to be with a, a band called uh, the, the Departed, uh-huh. which used to be, and then The Departed used to be cross-Canadian ragweed from uh, okay. Oklahoma. Yeah. But his name is Seth James, uh, just a great telly player and fantastic singer and writer. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's an amazing career, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about some of those old stories and everything up to modern day. And, uh, thanks so much for absolutely yeah, man. man. Uh, anything I can do, just let me know in the future. You've been, you've been great to talk to and you ask great questions, yeah. which is, uh, so, sometimes that's a rarity. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you did your homework. Well, coming, coming at it from a music, music nerd point of view, but also being in it, you know, sort of gives me the, the insight to, uh, to ask, relevant questions i think i hope <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah you know and and uh, i can't wait to talk to natalie now and tell her that i did a podcast with a guy that that heard the same commencement speech from taylor as, as she yeah, did man well thanks so much lloyd i hope to meet you one of these days and yeah man and, uh, best of luck with everything Well, that was fun. Lloyd Maines, that guy's awesome. I really had fun talking to him, and I hope you uh, learned a little bit about him and his music and career from the episode. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Mm-hmm.
Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 